Hey everybody, it's JT. What is on your holiday meal shopping list? Well, I would suggest Painted Hills Natural Beef. It is some of the best beef in the world. And your friends and family will be thanking you for a long time if you serve Painted Hills Natural Beef for your holiday meals. And now you can buy it online just by going to PaintedHillsBeef.com. Use the code BBQNATION at checkout and save yourself 15% on your order. Give Painted Hills Natural Beef a place on your table this holiday season. It's time for Barbecue Nation with JT. So fire up your grill, light the charcoal, and get your smoker cooking. Now, from the Turn It, Don't Burn It studios in Portland, here's JT. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the nation, uh, Barbecue Nation. I'm JP, along with my co-host, Hall of Famer, Ms. Leanne Whippen, with uh, Camaro Dave and Commander Chris running around in the background, uh, being invisible with green screens. We'd like to thank the folks at Painted Hills Natural Beef, Beef the Way Nature Intended. You can find out more about Painted Hills. Just go to naturalbeef.com. There's a couple hyphens in there, but you'll figure it out. So... <clears throat> I'm a sentimental guy, if you haven't noticed this over the show or uh, course of the years of the shows here. And so today we're very privileged to bring in two doctors, um, not medical doctors, smart doctors uh, from my old alma mater, Oregon State University. We've got Dr. Stacy uh, Simonich and Dr. Carol uh, Lorenzen. Did I say it right, Carol? Close enough. Close enough. Okay. See, I told you I'd screw that up. And of course, um, Leanne's here to correct my grammar as most things. Anyway, uh, Dr. Stacy is the Dean at um, the OSU Ag Department and Carol is uh, the Department Chair for Animal and Rangeland Sciences. So ladies, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. I, I love the Oregon State logos and stuff. I really think that's very cool. Anyway, um, so a couple of things I wanted to start with. We talked about this a little bit before we came on the air. Women in ag schools, I've seen, and I, I'm this is an external view, increases over the years in ag schools. And for you hardcore barbecue folks, we will get to why that's very important in just a few minutes here. But how how is that affected or have you seen that? Obviously, as your position as, as dean, Stacy, how how has that increased over the years or am I way off base? No, I think you're right on, Jeff. Um, we're fortunate now we have 3,300 students in the College of Ag Sciences at Oregon State. And our enrollment in the college keeps growing at like two to 3% per year. Wow. We see other um, ag colleges across the US, many of them are decreasing in enrollment. And about, I think it's about 65, 60, 65% of our students are women. So, um, we're definitely seeing women becoming more and more interested in agriculture and natural resources. Uh, breaking the, the glass ceiling, as they like to say, it's a common use phrase, and I actually like it. Um, in the world of, of food and commodities and corporate and private ranches, how is Oregon State? you know, after they get done with their school and they've gone through all this, how are you helping them out in the work world to get to those types of positions? 
Yeah, just last fall, we found out universities.com rated our Oregon State University College of Sciences number two in the world, or number two in the U.S. for um, students in ag sciences. And it accounted for recruiting students, retaining students, and graduating students and getting them into good jobs. So um, we're doing well. Number one was Texas A&M. We're number two. You know where we're headed next. Um, but we have a good track record in re, uh, recruiting, retaining, and graduating, getting good jobs. We also have a very strong career um, science initiative at OSU and um, a, a department that specializes and partners with us to get good jobs for our students. We also hold a very large recruiting fair every fall uh, something like 40 you know different employers in the space across the state will come to osu uh, will be in the ballroom of the mu memorial union you might remember that that very oh, yeah. nice yeah pretty where there's dances and stuff but anyway we'll have that packed with um, college actually not just college of ag science students but students from all over um, campus who are interested in agriculture and natural resource jobs so those are some of the ways that we make sure our students get good jobs so carol in um you know, rangeland science uh, and animal science, too. You know, you wouldn't have thought maybe even 20 years ago that women would be really striving to get to the forefront and, and get out there. When you talk to somebody, and this is from my personal experience, when you talk to somebody that doesn't know anything about rangeland sciences, they don't know what a riparian area is or, you know, pick something. Um, they kind of look at you funny. And I'm sure and scratch their head and go, why, young lady, why would you want to go out into that part of the world and work? So what do you what do you tell folks about that? And, and tell us a couple of your success stories. So let me start off with the demographics for the whole department. Okay. We are very similar to a lot of animal science, animal rangeland science departments in the country. We are predominantly animal science undergrads. So we're about 80% female undergrads. And most of our animal science students are self-declared pre-vet. They won't all get in. So we <laughs> do try to expose them through experiential learning, through bringing in guest speakers, especially into our introductory courses, to other types of jobs that are available in animal and food, agriculture, and also on the rangeland science side. There is a ton of opportunity in both public and private land management um, right now on the range side. So we do have female students that are very interested in going into those areas where they can either work for the federal or state government or with private land ownership on private ranches. Well, we've got a lot of them. Uh, especially, you know, private ranches and stuff. I think that's interesting. Well, you know, the name of this show is Barbecue Nation. So that really, when they're working for the ranches, they're working on commodities and, and food, even though it's not all prepackaged and already got the cellophane on it there at the ranch, but it does eventually get to a store. How have you seen it change, uh, Carol, say over the last 15 years? um the the women working their way up in the in the commodities 
to actually have more of a hands-on approach to getting the products to market. Right. So first, Jeff, I didn't give you my background, but I am a meat scientist by training. Oh, we've got questions for you. Trust me. Uh-huh. Great. So, um, and with that, so, and I'm sure we're going to get to the commodity piece where I can talk about my work with the National Beef Quality Audit, the National Beef Tenderness Surveys, and how we've seen improvement in especially beef products over time. Mm-hmm. I would say, so I am of the vintage where I went to school. There were not very many women in animal science. We had one professor at Washington State University that was a woman when I was there. We have seen a big shift in the number of female students that want to go to graduate school or that want to become undergraduates in animal science, right? That's probably been going for the last 30 years since I started graduate school. And we've seen that shift to where we do have more women going into animal science. What we're not seeing is then That starts to get a little more level going into grad school. We're about 50-50. And then when we see who chooses to become academics, we end up with a little bit. uh, It's it's more towards the men that Mm -hmm. want to become academics, it seems like, than the women. So we are seeing more women entering the pipeline, but not necessarily taking the, the jobs at the end. And part of that is because we see those women getting out and going into industry either with their bachelor's degree or with their master's degree. Mm-hmm. Because especially on the meat science side, there's so much opportunity at the master's level to go work for a company, whether it is a small or very small processor, a medium processor, or one of the large national or international um, meat industry partners that we have. Right. You, I mean, you're talking about, and where I live, there's a little company mm-hmm. called Vogets, but then we deal with Tyson too. Correct. So, I mean, that's the, the really the both ends of the, of the range there like that. Um, Stacy, how does the school of ag keep up with the, and, and Carol, you answer this too, please changing technology and the trends in research. Uh, an issue arises. This is what we see from the civilian side. We, an issue arises all of a sudden, Angus cows, their right ear is four inches too long. And so uh-huh. we've got to do a study on it and all that. And of course, I'm being facetious there. But technology changes at such a rapid pace right now. And the the utilizing of that technology in, for example, the beef industry. I mean, what we're doing in that now versus what we did even 20 years ago is monstrous. So how do you keep up with that? Well, maybe I can address it from the college side more broadly first, then I can hand it to Carol for her department specifically. But, um, you know, we're really seeing huge gains in the OSU's College of Egg Sciences around research funding. Mm-hmm. It's doubled in the past three years or so. We're now going to cross the $100 million a year expenditures and research mark. So we're when you look at OSU as a whole, we're neck and neck every year with research funding with the College of Engineering. So we're really a powerhouse overall in research at OSU. Um, and so, you know, we have some of the best, most cutting edge scientists and research in the country, in the world, mm-hmm. uh, in our college. And maybe I'll pass it to Carol to address it specifically for her department. Yep, and I want to add too that if you look at the strategic plan for the university, 
we're doing a lot with upgrading facilities. And um, right now our department is a beneficiary of that. So our main building we do all our research in is being uh, renovated right now. So it will be up to date with at least the latest outfittings of a building. Mm -hmm. Okay, we're going to take a break. We're going to be back with uh, Dr. Stacy Simonich and Dr. Carol Lorenzen. Hopefully I said those names correctly again. I have a trouble mm -hmm. with that, especially on Tuesday mornings. Anyway, <laughs> we'll be back in just a minute. Don't go away. everybody, it's JT, and this is a special version of Barbecue Nation. It is brought to you in part by Painted Hills Natural Beef. Beef you can be proud to serve your family and friends. That's Painted Hills Natural Beef. Welcome back to Barbecue Nation. I'm JT, along with my co-host and co-commander, Ms. Leanne Whippen. Hall of Famer, I might say, there. Um, if you want to contact us, it's pretty easy. We, of course, we're on Facebook and Twitter and all the different platforms. Or you can just go to barbecuenationjt.com and there's a little box there you can fill out and send us questions. And we normally try to reply to those, but we're very fortunate to have Dr. Stacy uh, Simonich and Dr. Carol Lorenzen today, both from my alma mater, Oregon State University. Dr. Stacy is the uh, dean of the ag department there. and Dr. Carroll is the head of the uh, uh, Rangelands uh, Sciences Division and also uh, Animal Science Division. So I wanted to follow up with one more question on that. How much do markets, uh, and when I say markets, I'm talking about current markets. You know, the beef cattle market is, as Stacy knows, I work closely with Painted Hills Natural Beef, so I always get the, Will sends me the reports every week, you know, <laughs> so I, I kind of get tuned into that, but how much do those kind of markets influence that research we were just talking about? I mean, do they ever say, man, we can't figure this out. OSU, we want to hire you, give you a grant to do this research for us, figure out how we can stabilize these markets. I know part of that would be on the economic side, but part of it's also got to be on the production side. Well, maybe I'll just say before I pass to Carol and more on the details, um, you know, Will and Gabrielle Homer are OSU alums, right? Absolutely. And so you share that connection, too. And they're good partners with the college. And um, believe me, when I want good beef, good steaks, <laughs> I order from them. And, and so my family routinely eats their steaks here in Corvallis. So um, anyway, great people. Um, I'll let Carol maybe give some more detail, but I just add that we have an applied economics department and just recently did two hires with a fairly um, large extension appointments. One actually we stole um, away from Cal Poly recently to come up and they're they're helping a big uh, quite a bit now on the economic side in the beef industry, cattle industry. So and I'll pass it to Carol. So the way research works usually is that our researchers are responding to requests for proposal. Mm -hmm. So we do said so we are very fortunate in the state of Oregon that the Oregon Beef Council provides funding and the Oregon Dairy Farmers Association provide funding to the university to do research. But the, the researchers or the faculty have to apply for those grants. So they set what their priorities are and their um 
producer base, their their committee, producer committee decides who gets the funding. Mm -hmm. So that is a mechanism where they say, this is what we want research funding on. And this is how, and then they're putting their dollars where their mouth is to get that research funding. It works kind of the same way with the National Cattlemen's Beef Association um, to get funding back as well. So those are more applied research grants and almost all of our faculty have funding from those sources to do that applied research that directly impacts what the producers in the state of Oregon want. We have other mechanisms which are more basic through the USDA mm -hmm. and those maybe can't respond as quickly to market drivers I as, as these other commodity-based funding. I Because my next part of that question was, uh, have you seen how the research over the years actually affects the markets? You know, you, you've done the research for to stick with cattle and you've done the research for the Cattlemen's Association or whoever it is. And, and you come back and you say, hey, guys, these are our findings. I don't need to get in the weeds here, but here's here's the five most important things we found to simplify it. And have you seen the producers actually take the results that you found and apply them? So, yes, I'm gonna, I'll give you a couple examples. So sure. as a graduate student, I wrote the grant for and was in charge of the very first national beef quality audit, right? And so we were looking for where is the beef industry leaving money on the table? So one of those examples was brands. Because at that time, in 1991, I'm dating myself, in 1991, hides were very valuable. Okay, that's a different market today. Mm -hmm. We had a lot of producers in a lot of states, you know, they have <laughs> to identify when animals change hands. And they were putting the brand on the rib, right in the middle of the high. So I happened to do my graduate school at another institution in the South. And we went and did some education based on the quality audit at the King Ranch. And the King Ranch, based on the findings and based on how much money that was worth, went through all the trouble to move their brand from the side to the hip, where it could easily be cut out of the hide. Yeah. So that's an example. Another example from that same audit was it led to another study looking at injection site blemishes. So people were putting injections in the hind quarter of the animal, and it was causing lesions. Based on that research, and that also helped develop or spur the beef quality assurance program. They moved all of those injection sites from the hind area up into the forequarter where there are more muscles, more fatty deposits, and it caused less of a problem. So they completely switched, <laughs> the, the producers completely switched where they were giving injections to somewhere else. And so that's something that's now been going on for close to 30 years, 25 years at least, based on those findings. In the state of Oregon, what we've seen with the research, especially some of the research that's being conducted at the Eastern Oregon Agricultural Research Center in Burns, where they have a partnership with the Nature Conservancy and USDA ARS, they are actually doing research on those riparian areas that you talked about mm -hmm. on sage-grouse habitat. And their research through what they've developed has helped change legislation or keep legislation or keep regulations um, more favorable to producers out mm -hmm. of the Oregon legislature. So we've seen that not only is it effective producer practices, 
but has also been able to affect legislation in the state of Oregon. Yeah, Representative uh, Mark Owens from Burns. He actually lives over by Crane. I, I've known him for years and uh, used to help him move cattle once in a while. So that that, that was a very good deal. Um, I'm trying to see how much time I have here before I jump into the, the next one. When we come back, let's do it that way. I'll cheat. When we come back, I want to talk about the development of uh, <clears throat> cattle, a little bit of swine and poultry, higher yields that at the end of the trip, you might say, help both the ranchers and the consumers. So we're going to be talking about that when we come back with Dr. Stacy and Dr. Carroll from Oregon State University, my alma mater, right after this. Hey, are you ready to fire up your grill and get ready to taste the difference this spring and summer? Hi, I'm JT, and I'm thrilled to announce our further collaboration with Painted Hills Natural Beef to bring you your best barbecue experience. As a special treat, Barbecue Nation listeners get a 15% off discount by just typing in the code Barbecue Nation when you check out. So all you got to do is go to the Painted Hills Natural Beef website, click on the store, place your order, and when it has discount or code at the bottom, type in BBQ Nation. Don't miss out on this really juicy deal from Painted Hills Natural Beef. Welcome back to Barbecue Nation. Again, we'd like to thank the folks at Painted Hills Natural Beef. Here's one for you, Stacy, Dr. Stacy, excuse me. Uh, if you go to their online store and type in the code BBQ Nation, that's just the letters BBQ Nation, you get 15% off your order on their online store. So that's something for our listeners here. And you know, I just wrote it down for my next order. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> And uh, also, my uh, esteemed colleague on the other microphone in Florida, whose picture is not working today, but that's what she looks like in that still photo. Uh, she owns a powder, uh, a product called Pig Powder, which was developed by her father. It's an award-winning rub. Uh, it was uh, awarded the Best Rub on the Planet Award a while back, and it's used by pitmasters all over the country now for over 30 years. And it's like I said, it's called pig powder and it's available at pigpowder.com. And as I always tell people, if you ask really nicely, Ann will send you an autographed photo of herself. So there you go. Anyway, um, before we went to break, I, I, I brought up the fact that uh, developing higher yields on the actual animals. I mean, we were trying to do that back when I was in school. And I won't tell you what years those were. I'll just say it was in the previous century. But my point is, <laughs> we were we were trying to get those yields higher. And, you know, it's not like you're going to gain 35% on a beef cattle cow, you know, a steer. You're not going to do that. That's just out of the question. But we were talking about small percentages. But those small percentages add up at the end of the process. So, uh Carol, could you kind of address that for us? Sure. So we've seen over the years, so we've seen a few trends. We'll start with beef, and I know you want to talk about pork and poultry as well. So we've seen a few trends. First, back in the 60s, 70s, 50s, most of the breeding stock that we had in the United States was what they call English breeds, right? Mm -hmm. Burford, Angus, some of the older breeds. We'd also gone through a period 
where they, for some reason, wanted to decrease the size of cattle. If you look at those old pictures, when they're standing in straw and the straw is up to their belly and they're really small. And in the late 70s and in the 80s, we started importing what they call European continental cattle, larger breed cattle. So that did a lot right away through crossbreeding and hybrid vigor to increase the yield. We increased the size, we increased the muscle mass of the cattle. We had a couple of things happen in the meat industry that maybe didn't increase the yield of the cattle, but increased the yield of what the grocer was seeing and what the consumer was seeing. So vacuum packaging became popular. We had cutouts being done in um, lar- in, in a single location and sending out what they call box beef that we currently see today. Some mm-hmm. of that was boneless, could easily be handled in the grocery store. We also started to go, we had the war on fat in the 1980s. Jeff, you're going to regret asking me this question because I can go on for a long time. That's okay. So we had the war of fat in the 1980s, and that was really saying that we wanted to start bringing down the amount of fat on the outside of the carcass. So we weren't doing that by breeding in genetics at the time. We were put we were uh, putting a knife to a cut of meat and cutting the fat off. And so prior to that, we were selling what we call Packer Trim, which is, I'm sure a lot of your listeners know, was up to one inch of fat on the, the cut of meat. Mm-hmm. And we started going down to doing quarter inch trim in the 80s. We They redid right after I graduated from college, they renamed the quality grades and they renamed good to select. So it had more appeal to the consumer. They'd done research that shown that select is acceptable. It's It will rate the same as um, low choice by the consumer. And we started putting that in the marketplace. Then we started doing some more things using genetic technology, right? We started looking at um, estimated breeding values for carcass traits, because before we were always looking at mothering traits, um, weight of the calf, weight at weaning. We started looking at carcass traits. And after the quality audit came out, the industry really started focusing on quality. Um, We were at that point, the recommendation was you're going to a certain size specification of your animals. You wanted to have a yield grade one and two, hopefully a choice or higher quality grade. Um, and then keep them within a certain weight range. So we didn't have so much excess plate waste. We would talk about that you could have a 16-ounce steak and you could have it from an 8-inch ribeye up to a 20-inch ribeye. The 20-inch ribeye, it's, you know, maybe half an inch thick. You can't cook it. Yeah. The 8-inch ribeye, it's two inches thick. Again, you can't cook it. And now we've just, and we've seen that we are going to just larger carcass weights. This is a very brief history. Sure. Right? We've just taken... We've taken the the train has left the station and we're producing more meat with less cattle than we ever were before. So we have more pounds of protein and more meals that we can feed. In addition, we've certainly gone to higher quality. So we're seeing lower yield grades, less fat that we're throwing away, but much higher quality. And so some of the quality initiatives, you mentioned Angus, certified Angus beef has certainly taken off. There are a number of others out there that are recognized as a quality standard when you're purchasing beef. And so we have, and within that, there have been some marketing changes, right? Like there've been retained ownership so that as a producer, you could keep ownership of your cattle through the feed yard and mm-hmm. you could reap the profit. So that didn't, so before the industry was very segmented, you know, this retained ownership idea started late eighties, early nineties. It's still around today. 
and people found other mechanisms to recoup value. Now we see people going even into more niche marketing. So we have direct marketing over the internet. We have other people doing direct marketing. We have certain people that are doing niche marketing by breeding certain breeds of cattle and marketing it that way. Wagyu is one that comes to mind mm-hmm. um, as a name. That's pretty brief. Did that get you what you wanted, Jeff? Yeah, actually, uh, I think so. Because, it, as I said, that's something that Will and I talk about a lot. You know, all kinds of stuff. And the one thing you touched on, Carol, is um, the ancillary products. We talked about that in the very first segment. The hides, the hooves, yeah. the tails, the bones. The tongues, the, the tongues. Yeah, yeah, all that right. stuff. Mm-hmm. But everything, there, there seems to be very, very little waste anymore compared to when I was going to school and studying this stuff. I mean, some of that stuff just got chucked in the dumpster, so to speak. Not anymore. Maybe the very end of the tail, I'm not sure, but you know, they, uh, but there's a big market for oxtail soup too. So, anyway, um, I have a nice brush. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. No, that's fine. That's fine. But, you know, it, it seems to be a little different. I think also there's, there's trends that we look at as far as, you were you were talking about Carol uh, less fat this and that, and we got tried to get way down into these really lean, uh, especially with people that had something like Pinsgauer cattle or something like that. They're very very lean, but they're yeah. also tougher than hell to eat. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no there's not a lot of flavor, and you usually have to have a little baby chainsaw to cut them on your plate. Do you think that uh, we've maximized the quality and the yield that we can get to this point, or is there still room for improvement? I think there's still room for improvement. So I think it depends on who you talk to and how much they believe is genetics, how much they believe is feeding, and how much they believe that is affected in the plant environment. Well, that's good. How much do you think we can get, though? I mean, how much more improvement? Um, I don't know that we're going to get more improvement on the upside, right? Like okay. more prime. I mean, we have, if you looked at USDA trends in the last couple of years, you know, there were weeks they were getting 10% prime. Like that's insane, right? Right. That's a ton. But I do think we can definitely get rid of the bottom part, right? We can get rid of the standards. We can reduce our number of select and push some of those into choice, for example. Hmm. And we can still do that at yield grade one and two. Well, you know, Carol, sometimes it's like, and again, I'll, I'll reference Painted Hills. Sometimes they're, they're grading, uh, even though it's prime, there's a better market in the choice cuts. You know what I mean? They're, they're looking at that. And some of them are just right on the verge and some of them go over the line as far as prime like that. So there's markets for prime stuff, obviously, probably more in the restaurant area. And, and Leanne can address that. But uh choice is great because I, when i was a kid we raised our own feeder steers and stuff and i'm pretty sure they didn't grade out at choice you know <laughs> so and probably weren't hung for 14 days before they were packaged either no 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 no, no 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 maybe mm-hmm. maybe 14 hours you know if they were lucky yeah, probably longer than that but yeah but yeah like two yeah. days maybe leanne when you were in the restaurant business did mm-hmm. Did you, you know, we've got this great misnomer that everybody talks about. I want a piece of prime rib. Well, you know, it's the primal and blah, blah, blah. We've covered that 
ad infinitum in the show. But did people buy higher quality steaks? It depends. It depends on the location of the restaurant. For example, in Virginia, the price point would be too high, whereas in Chicago, they have a lot of money and they're willing to pay the higher price. Um, I followed the markets quite rarely and pricing, you know, through my vendors. So when I could snatch up a prime, you know, one week that caught, you know, was previously a choice rate, you know, I'm going to do it and run a special and, you know, try to make some money, but you have to look at the profitability. So it's, it's hard to make money, especially today serving prime, especially in the barbecue market, because it's just not like running a high-end steakhouse, you know? Yeah. And they've gotten, and we're going to talk about this in the next segment a little bit, but uh, we see this in the barbecue competition sector. They all of a sudden they want Wagyu, you know, they really want Wagyu. The average person at home is not going to go pay 200 or $300 for a Wagyu uh, brisket, so to speak. Mm -hmm. It's Mm -hmm. just, it's not, uh, I don't know. It's not efficient. It's not cost effective for them. So we're going to take another break. We're going to come back and wrap up Barbecue Nation this week with Dr. Stacey uh, Simonich and Dr. Uh, Carol Lorenzen. I think I got them right that time. How about that? Mm -hmm. We'll be right back. Hey, everybody, it's JT, and this is a special version of Barbecue Nation. It is brought to you in part by Painted Hills Natural Beef, beef you can be proud to serve your family and friends. That's Painted Hills Natural Beef. Welcome back to the nation here on USA Radio Networks and a million platforms around the web and all of that. I'm JT, along with uh, Ms. Leanne Whippen, who you can't see today. She's got a, well, you can see her, but she's not moving. It's kind of static. She's got a little tech problem down there. Anyway, we've got uh, the Dean of uh, Oregon State University Ag Department, Dr. Stacy uh, Simonich, and uh, the head of the Beef Science and Rangeland and you got a whole list of stuff you do, Carol. I do. <laughs> Does Stacy just kind of pass those off to you every once in a while and say, here, here's another one? Some of it, some of it I take on on my own. Oh, there you go. Mm-hmm. So we talked about it going to uh, the break. Uh, there is a big push now uh, on Wagyu. Um, I'm going to say my thoughts on that real quickly i'm not a huge fan of it because it's too fatty for me and i'm not a guy that likes to have my steaks like beef jerky either but it's just when you look at a nice ribeye uh say from painted hills and then you look at a ribeye from wagyu it looks like a roadmap of cleveland on the the you know marbling on the wagyu what has been the trend in the in in the ag world in the science world towards wagyu and are those breeders and producers are they trying to get more efficiency out of the carcass too i don't know about more efficiency they are trying to um work on getting higher grading in the usda grading mm-hmm. system i do know that um They are, from the data I've seen and that I've put together for some things, I'm not sure that comparing Wagyu and comparing Angus cattle is all that comparable. 
If you look at the fatty acid composition of the fat that's within the muscle that's in the marbling, it's very different. So I am not, I guess I'm not totally convinced that they can even take the same science that we've used to increase efficiencies in boss Taurus cattle and apply it and have that work. Okay. So this is a barbecue show. So what's your favorite uh, thing to grill smoke? Um, Barbecue, well, how people have different terms for it and what they're doing, but uh, let's start with Stacy on that. Yeah, I would say for me, it's brisket. It's like a, a leaner brisket. Um, just it's the right combination for me in terms of flavor and tenderness and um, and hopefully fat. So, yeah, for me, I'd say brisket. Okay, and Carol. So for me, I would say my face, so I am an amateur in this area and um, have gotten a trader since I've been here and trying some things out. So my favorite thing that seems to work every time for me is prime rib. I have a little bit of cheating with a rub I got from one institution down south and a smoke cycle I got from my former institution I attended. Um, and then the other thing that always <laughs> knock it out of the part, so I, I do cheat a bit on that. Um, using a little technology, but I have a pretty good recipe for wings that I really like on the grill as well. Yeah. Yeah. I can see that. Um, I had somebody ask us and we have, uh, I don't know if you know, a meathead from amazingribs.com. He's like Mr. Science when it comes to grilling and smoking and barbecuing and all that. And uh, he's frequently on the show. I, did have a listener email me and they wanted to know the difference in density between like pork and beef. So one, I'm not even sure that that's density. I think it might be surface area more than density. Okay. On the example you just gave Two, I also, there is a difference in cooking times based on the amount of water within the cut. So the water holding capacity. So the fat and the water can affect the amount of time it takes to cook. And that's because when heat hits the meat and those water molecules, some of them come out, but some stay in and they start to dance and they transfer heat different, fat and water transfer heat differently than muscle. There's always got to be some little bugaboo that maybe a tip that people could be aware of. Yeah, maybe I could take that first and then pass to Carol. Maybe I'll take the higher level view of that in my own personal view of that. You know, I um, I prefer to buy maybe from people I know and um, as locally as possible. So when you have that kind of relationship, right, with folks and you trust them, it doesn't mean, um, you know, there's there it may be go 100% smoothly, but I would rather you know, buy from Painted Hills Beef or um, a local community supported agriculture program than um, going down to my national food chain where, you know, I go in and I'm not really sure where that beef came from. Right. It's probably not U.S. beef and it's probably not Oregon or Pacific Northwest beef or pork or chicken. So um, for me and the way I choose, I don't I don't necessarily choose organic, but I choose local when I can. So I would just say that. And I'm lucky enough I can afford to do that. Right. And, and invest yeah. in that way. So I'll pass to Carol now. So I um, want to address a couple things. One, Jeff, you mentioned the recalls. So I want to say, if you look at those recalls lately, 
We've had very few of them mm-hmm. that were actually due to any kind of con- um, uh, pathogen contamination. They're mostly due to a physical object getting into the product, a glove, a piece of plastic, something like that. So, sure. um, so the USDA is out looking for those hazards to make sure people don't get sick, but that's going to be a hazard that you're going to like break a tooth more than you're going to get ill. So, so that's a different type of recall. So I want to make sure that people know we do have the safest uh, meat supply in the world here in the United States. The second thing um, uh, Stacy mentioned, maybe stuff not being from the U.S. I can tell you that has to be on the label. So you can see that if you go into any store and you're picking up a product and the labels say imported, and then, you know, it's not from the U.S. If it doesn't say that it's from the U.S. The third thing I'll tell you is what I always used to tell, or I always tell my students when I talk about food safety. The great thing about meat is you're going to open up the package and it's going to smell so bad. You're not going to cook it before you get sick. So for the most part, um, you know, meat is very safe. If it smells the way you think it should, if it looks the way you think it should, when you cook it, you'll be fine. And it's going to give you its own clues and you're going to throw it out before most people will throw it out before they would get sick from it. And the final thing, the one tip I do want to tell you is that if you decide a lot of meat has a freeze-by date on it when you buy it at the grocery store, right? Mm-hmm. Remember, if you freeze it that day and thought you gained no more days of shelf life. So once it's thawed, you have to cook it that day. Uh, Dr. Stacey uh, Simonich and Dr. Carol Lorenzen from Oregon State University, we thank you. They're going to stick around for after hours, which there's not much science in after hours, I can tell you that. But uh, we want to thank you ladies for being with us today. And uh, Leanne, as always, big smile on your face, I'm sure, down there. All right. Uh, We'll be back next week here on Barbecue Nation. And uh, remember our motto here, turn it. Don't burn it. And take care, everybody. Barbecue Nation is produced by JTSD LLC Productions in association with Salem Media Group. All rights reserved.